I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Clash of the Titles, the podcast that sees two movies with something in common go head-to-head to see which one does it better on this week's episodes. In the red corner, being an actor is hard. You get knockbacks, mess up your auditions. I mean, it's enough to make you offer up your wife as a baby mama for the Dark Lord Satan in return for the lead in a Broadway production. From 1968, we're talking Rosemary's Baby. Do you have children? Uh, we planned. Oh, you're pregnant? No, not yet. Oh, you're not religious, my dear, are you? You know how actors are. They're all a bit self-centered. While in the blue corner, Gregory Peck soon discovers that his brilliant replacement baby plan might not be as brilliant as he first thought, when, wouldn't you know it, the replacement baby is actually the son of the Dark Lord Satan. From 1976, it's The Omen. For generations, the Thorns have been a family of tremendous wealth, position and power. The perfect marriage of Ambassador Robert Thorne and his wife Catherine was fulfilled by the birth of their son, Damien. And then, when the child was five years old, something terrible happened. So what connects these two films and which one does it better? Let's find out. It's Clash of the Titles. Release the Kraken! Hello, Clash Potters. This isn't a dream. This is really happening. I'm Alex Zane. I'm Vicky Crompton. I'm Chris Tilly. Hey, Chris. Chris is recording remotely today. Let me paint you a picture. Vicky's wearing a diagonal checked dress over a white T-shirt. It's very hot here. She looks very summery. What are you wearing? Uh, don't bother with that. But I do want to say something. Um, mm. So I'm recording remotely. Your lights stop working in the studio. My headphones stopped working. And then our recording software crashed. Um, we're doing two shows about the devil today. I'm slightly concerned. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd rather talk about that than painting a picture of what you're wearing. But that's fine. I thought mine was a sort of softer way in. But yeah, that is very true, Chris. So a lot of stuff has gone on uh, in the, the, the five minutes prior to this show. Like Chris said, three different technical difficulties. Vicky is wearing the heresy that is diagonal checks. <laughs> 
And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm the only one who's sort of in a relatively normal space right now. I fear this I don't is know our what first, that means. This is our first cursed episode. <laughs> okay. So that's how you are. You're cursing the episode or believing the episode to be cursed. It's a great episode to be doing, though. I'm excited about these two movies, Chris. They weren't your choices, though. They were Victoria's choices. Rosemary's Baby versus The Omen. Uh, pray tell us you're working out. Kids driving you mad? No, well, um, when I was about 10, I found in a car boot sale this green book uh, called Great Horror Stories. Mm. And I was like, that's that's the thing for me. And it was just three novels but th- that had been turned into films. So it was The Omen, Rose's Baby and Salem's Lot. Mm. And I wanted it and my mum let me buy it, even though I was probably too young to read them. So I just read them and then I was scared. And then I watched the films and... Uh, Rosemary's Baby, if I'm honest, I was like, you know, that's a bit boring. And the other one, I was like, that's fucking awesome. And so I wanted to rewatch them as a grown up because I haven't seen either of them since. And the connections are quite clear. Okay, so I have a question. Did we not watch Rosemary's Baby together? Yeah. We did. Yeah, we did. Yeah, I thought we did at Goldsmiths because yes. I remember that was one of the. Uh... One of the like the the, the um, well, it was the other VHS I had that wasn't Go, and I, <laughs> while I watched Go like twenty times, I must have watched Rosemary's Baby like once. Well, we watched it once. We yeah. did, yeah. And then we we're like, but was that the time you thought it was boring? Yeah, right. Why did I not react like that at the time? No, you were like, oh, that was amazing. <laughs> no, I can't remember how you reacted, but I remember it being sort of like, yeah. But this is only the second time I've watched it. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Chris is going to go mad. Or he would do if he was here. But who knows if he's still with us. Or the Satan, the Dark Lord Satan has taken him. Uh, uh, Right then. So the clue you gave on last week war on last week's episode was Victoria. It was congratulations on your little monster. Congratulations on your little monster. Chris, you followed it up on Twitter with Better the Devil You Know. Better the Devil You Know. Uh, So we're on Twitter at ClashPod. We're on Instagram at ClashPod, where some wonderful guesses were birthed into the world. Uh, Adam Hine said, essentially two films with an incredibly evil lead child. It's The Omen versus Harry Potter. <laughs> it made me laugh at the time. So, no? Yeah, no, it's funny. <laughs> uh, a quick sort of apology to our regular listener um, who... I, I think I shamed last week Reese Page. He says I've I've gone with the same guess as my wife this week because I a guess different to her. She got it right. It's Gemma Page, his wife, and he says I shamed him for doing that. Oh, which I not know. I don't want to be the kind of guy. No, you don't. Who shames? No, you don't. Because not for the reasons that you're saying, <laughs> but because the old hag in Drag Me to Hell. You shamed me. <laughs> you doesn't end well for me. No. Doesn't end well for me. Uh, so this week, uh, both uh, Reese and Gemma uh, guessed The Omen versus The Exorcist. So you're both wrong. Yeah. Good idea. But mm, wrong. Lovely idea. Uh, then on to our right answers. Congratulations to Katie, Paul Logue, Russell, Laura, Jane, Jackson, Russ, who were all beaten to the first correct guess by Dylan Berry, who correctly guessed The Omen versus Rosemary's Baby. Dylan, well done. Your prize is a child we found who has his father's eyes. <laughs> Right then, connection section. Chris, you said uh, while we were going through our technical nightmare before this episode that uh, you had a few connections. Do you want to kick us off? (sighs) Yeah, well, Sport of Satan slash Satanic Cults, obviously. That Mm -hmm. is clear. Uh, Baby supposedly dying in childbirth. Yep. Works. Um, Yes. When Rosemary's baby? They tell her he's died. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Moving into new homes. And, and 
Having sex in rooms with no furniture. And having sex in that way that people used to do, where you either draw the curtains or turn the lights off because you do not want to see the other body, <laughs> which I sometimes still do. Uh, but it's more about my own shame. Doctors claiming a mother is a deluded fantasist. Yeah. Yeah. On that note, um, women who want babies really, really badly. Yeah. <laughs> And men whose careers take off as a result of Satanists while their wife suffers. 666. Dramatic haircuts. What's the dramatic haircut in The Omen? He cuts his his child's hair to look at the 666 uh, in his back of his head. That's not the dramatic. Yeah, okay. Any more? V? No, I just had the sex in rooms with no furniture, which shows you what I was thinking. (laughs) That'll do. Uh, All right, Chris, more for any more? Uh, Cursed movies, although that's a load of bollocks. Um, Both directors wanted all mention of the supernatural removed from their films to create ambiguity. I'm not sure that works. Uh, Hail Satan. um, Rosemary's Baby ends with um, uh, them chanting Hail Satan. And Hail Satan is the translation of some of the Latin in uh, Jerry Goldsmith's uh, soundtrack to to, uh, (laughs) The Omen. Um, mm-hmm. and kind, kind of Mia Farrow as well. Mia Farrow stars in Rosemary's Baby, and then they did a remake of The Omen. And I flew to New York to interview her because she plays Mrs. Blaylock in the remake of The Omen. Oh shit! Oh, I didn't know that. How was she? She was good. Yeah, she was charming. Yeah, really good. Cool. Unlike Julia Stiles, who was just bloody rude. <laughs> I've never seen a 2006 remake. I was going to watch it for this week, but then I was just like, why Why sully something great by well, watching uh, what sounds like a terrible reboot? Which it's is pointless. also, it's someone's, yeah, it's like a shot-for-shot shot remake almost, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It was, a, it was a full-on remake. When you've got a great setup here, do something different with it. You know, there's so many directions you can go in. To just remake something that's perfectly good in the first place was just a completely pointless exercise. Yeah, good point, Chris. Good point. Right then, shall we crack on with this? Uh, so, on Thursday, I'll be issuing you a grave warnering about your adopted son. But today, Chris, it's because he's not here, right? I've, I'm the one doing the puns now. It's because I miss him. This is my way of clinging on to him. Uh, but for not for the first time, today, Chris has done a deal with the devil in exchange for the success of this podcast. Chris takes on a journey. Rosemary's Baby revolves around a struggling actor desperate for that first big break. Guy Woodhouse has starred in a couple of plays, but finds himself stuck doing adverts, and he wants more. Then one day, Guy meets an adorable couple who make him an offer he can't refuse. Let us borrow your wife's womb for a few months, and we'll make your dreams come true. Guy likes what he hears and offers up his incubation unit, but it comes at a price in the shape of the devil impregnating his wife. That wife is understandably upset that she's carrying Satan's son, but the story has a happy ending, as both Paramount and Universal are now interested in God. <laughs> <laughs> Best line in the movie. Best line in the movie. It's so good. <laughs> Alex and Vicky, for your consideration, Rosemary's baby. <laughs> good stuff. Uh, so, Vicky, I think you kind of said when Rosemary's baby first entered your well. So, um, yeah. Uh, and did you, did you say you'd only seen it the once? Is that right? I've only seen it once. And obviously, I you know, to be, it's obviously a very predictable thing to say, but I didn't have children when I saw it. And now I do. So I felt very differently about it this time. Oh, that is intriguing. That is a cracking setup. 
Uh, Alex, how about you? <laughs> I think you've said the same as well. So was your first time yeah. watching it at uni? Yeah, my first time was watching this era with Vicky, who claims she didn't have any children back then, but... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, this was only the second watch for me as well. So yeah, and um, now that Vicky has children for definite, it was a very. I came at it from a very different angle. <laughs> yeah, I watched this when I was about thirteen or fourteen. I reckon when I hope I didn't have children, um, and I, it was just at that point when I decided I wasn't too scared to watch horror films, and so I spent about two summers watching every horror film I could get my hands on all the classics and yes, very much enjoyed it, but I haven't revisited. So um, yeah, it was fun looking at it sort of 30 years on this week. So, Wait, so is this only your second viewing as well? Though? I think right? it probably is. I think it is. Yeah. I don't wow. think I owned a copy of it. So yeah, we're all, it's a second viewing for everyone. I so be... look, no, I saw it when I was younger, but I didn't, it went right over my head. Then I saw it at college mm. and I thought it was boring. And I've seen it this week. That's my timeline. Okay, cool. Sorry, just skin up because just oh, facts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I did not think it was boring when I was thirteen. So that's because you're cleverer than me. Thirteen-year-old <laughs> me probably was. I doubt. <laughs> I doubt. I doubt current me is. Um, so should we look at the background to this one? Yeah. Because um, it is quite interesting. It's interesting. Um, let's start in 1965. Uh, author Ira Levin was struggling for his next big idea. And he decided to look no further than his pregnant wife in their New York apartment. Uh, he combined his feelings of anxiety with the fact that June 1966 was fast approaching or 666, which the book of Revelations claim is the number of the beast. Um, Levin said he took notes throughout his wife's pregnancy, but refused to let her read the manuscripts, which in hindsight is probably a good move. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're probably feeling fit. Pretty, I, I don't know, having never been pregnant. Um, and I don't know whether you sort of your senses are elevated. You're feeling pretty vulnerable. You do feel times. very vulnerable, yeah. Right, yeah. So finding out that you feel uh, fucking nuts, actually. So yeah. the seeds of doubt into your mind about the father of uh, the child that you're carrying. Probably not a good idea. No, definitely not. But also on a more serious note. Um, postpartum psychosis and prepartum psychosis are real things mm -hmm. and so that wasn't my story but that does happen and it's if you read about it it is fucking scary as you like like you can think very very dark things so there you go Okay. Uh, and this isn't the only time Ira Levin looked close to home for inspiration because soon after he divorced uh, this particular wife he went and wrote The Stepford Wives so uh, <laughs> nice one Ira <laughs> That really is the definition of write what you know. It just turns out what you what you know. Uh, so William Castle brought Rosemary's Baby uh, pre-publication to direct it himself. Do you guys know much about William Castle? Why no. do, why do I recognise that name? Like he's the I, king that's... of the he's the king of the gimmick. Um, I don't know if you ever watched that film. I lent you matinee, or I bought you Alex matinee, the Joe Dante one. Mm. But it was kind of about a version of, of William Castle, this guy who would who would play tricks on the audience or offer a, he would yes. offer a million he would offer a million dollars to you if you died while watching his one of his movies. Um, and yeah, he and he had like smell of vision and people appearing in the cinemas and stuff. It was like, you know, it's like the 4D experience now, yeah, just he, done 
on a shoestring budget. Yeah, he'd hand out these things he called ghost viewers, or he'd make cinema chairs vibrate, or he'd have skeletons floating over the audience. And one particular example I really like is for a film called Homicidal, he introduced a fright break where you had 45 seconds to leave the cinema and get a full refund midway through proceedings. But patrons would Mm. watch the film a second time, then get their money back halfway through. So Castle came up with what he called Coward's Corner, so when the fright break was announced, if you wanted to leave, you had to follow yellow footsteps up the aisle beneath a sign that said, cowards keep walking, while a record blared out a song called Watch the Chicken. And then to get your, <laughs> then to get your money, you had to enter Coward's Corner and sign a card stating, I'm a bona fide coward. Um, and when you introduced that, the demand for you refunds... You shamed me! <laughs> the demand for refunds soon dropped. So um, he was the king of the B-movies, basically, and studio head Robert Evans purchased Rosemary's Baby with him attached, uh, but refused to let him direct by saying uh, this project was too good for William Castle. And he had his eye on Roman Polanski. So uh, as Polanski puts it, um, Robert Evans called me with a proposal for a skiing picture. And since skiing is my sport and I've always been eager to do a film about it, I came and he handed me the script, but also a bunch of long strips of pink paper, which were the proofs for a book called Rosemary's Baby. He said, read this first, please. So I went back to the hotel where I was staying and I started reading it. And around four in the morning, I was still at it. The next day I came back to the studio and said, "Okay, I'll do it. Uh, He was so excited by the project that he went back to London and in a marathon session wrote a 260 page draft. Um, which he then had trouble cutting down. And he had the same thing with the movie, which he turned into a four-hour movie that he had trouble cutting down as well. Um, uh, Casting-wise, Polanski uh, wanted, uh, and these are his words, um, he wanted a strong, healthy, sexy lead. And he, in two different interviews I've watched, he, he, he said he, wants, he wanted a milk-fed, all-American girl. What, what does that mean? Like a horse. <laughs> Yeah, Chris, I will say you're you're missing some priceless Victoria faces in the studio today, uh, <laughs> as you describe his requests. So this is this is some good face acting from the other side of the room. It's not even acting. It's, not, it's how not I acting. really feel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and Tuesday Weld was the actress he wanted, who was your sort of typical American girl next door. But Robert Evans disagreed. He wanted Mia Farrow. Um, Polanski thought she was too fragile and frail and childlike, but he was impressed with the vulnerability she brought to the part in her um, when, when he met with her. And so uh, they offered her the role and she was married to Frank Sinatra at the time. Um, and it, I don't think it was the best of relationships they had, even though uh, she said she was very much in love with him. But he read the script. Uh, he saw the nudity and told her he couldn't see her in the part. But nevertheless, she landed the role and uh, took the role. But that wasn't the end of her issues with Big Frank because he wanted her to appear in a film that he was shooting called The Detective. And Rosemary's Babies ran over schedule. So Frank said, it's me. Uh, it's, it's, it's The Detective or Rosemary's Baby. But either way, if you pick Rosemary's Baby, it's over. Um, Mia Farrow recently said he's a Sicilian. He wanted his woman to do what he wanted. And she didn't have much choice. But um, Evans, Robert Evans showed her the daily, showed her the footage, said you're going to win an Oscar for this. And so she stuck around. She picked the film over Frank and he served her divorce papers on the set of Rosemary's Baby. Uh, She signed them there and then on the set and then uh, divorced him. And Rosemary's Baby came out a couple of weeks after the detective and destroyed it at the box office. Hmm. Good. She didn't win an Oscar, though. No. (laughs) 
Uh, but she maintains to this day that it's her best performance and the best film she's been in, which I think I would agree with. Um, and as for the male leads, Evans wanted Robert Redford, the all-American matinee idol, but they couldn't get a deal done. Um, he also wanted Jack Nicholson, but Palancey hadn't heard of him uh, and didn't know him yet, which is ironic because obviously they would go on to do Chinatown together. So it was Polanski that suggested uh, writer-director John Cassavetes, and the pair of them got on well during rehearsals, uh, but not when they were shooting the movie because there's no leeway for improvising on a Rowan Polanski set. And the tension between them spilled over into big arguments and um, fights. And I think it worked, though, because I think that sort of feeds into to, to, um, to Cassavetti's performance in the movie. But maybe yeah. we'll talk about I that. I was going to during... say... Yeah, go on, Alex. I think you're. I think you. No, I think you're right. I think because he seems like Tense. preoccupied, yeah. like just mm. going through, just going through the motions in the scenes he spends with Mia Farrow, yeah. which he probably is not giving it his all because he's like, "Fuck this movie, fuck Roman Polanski," mm-hmm. and actually that just made, that, that that makes it work even better because of that disinterest and that apathy. Mm. I 100% agree. Uh, and as for the other actors, obviously everyone else is, is an older person. Um, Polanski was new to Hollywood and didn't know um, many of the older actors, but he, he wanted he wanted some of the famous old stars under contract. So what he did was he drew uh, what he wanted from each character, and then the casting uh, department went off and found actors that fit the part that he drew. And so that's how you ended up with this amazing cast, um, which is odd. Um, that's about it. Uh, uh, in terms of background, I've got. Has anyone got anything else? No. No, okay. that was great, Chris. Okay. It's hard doing this remotely when I can't see your faces. I know it is. That's... And when you're getting bored. No, I was just throwing you a little bit of support because I was worried that you were thinking exactly that. So I'm like, that was great, Chris. Oh, I feel like you. I've been on a journey. Thank you. And the only last thing I'll say is being a horror fan. I, this This came out in 1968 and I feel like, um, that's the year that the horror film grew up via this movie, A Night of the Living Dead, because the Hayes Code was a thing of the past, and these are recognisably modern horror films. So I'd say this is this is the year the genre properly came of age. Mm. So the movie, uh, let's start off with The Bramford. Um, so when reading those early pages, Polanski thought it was a soap opera initially. He, he nearly put it down. And when he realised what he had, he decided that, he wanted the opening scenes to feel like a, a kitchen melodrama for television. So he says he started the movie like a Doris Day picture. So we've got sort of a footage of New York and Rosemary's humming the film's lullaby theme, which I don't la, know about la, you, but la, it immediately la, makes it more la, creepy. La, do you not think? Utterly terrifying. That <laughs> la, 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 la. Oh, it's a great scene set because it's so, you're already like, this is, this is weird. This is going to make mm. me feel weird. Mm, and there's something about horror ha- taking unfolding during the day. I don't think we're used to seeing horror in that context. We still aren't. Horror takes place at night, whereas, you know, most of this happens in bright daylight and it's very colourful, which sort of, I don't know, mm. throws you off a little bit. Yeah. So we meet Rosemary. She's a small town girl from Omaha in the big city and she's heading into the Bramford, um, for which they use New York's Dakota building, um, a high rise. She's with her husband, Guy. I love that he's called Guy. I think that's funny. Um, <laughs> just man. <laughs> a bloke. Uh, played by John Casmetes. Um, and immediately, they immediately establish him as an not all that successful actor. Uh, they have a look around uh, one of the apartments and the previous tenant has passed away. She died in hospital after being in a coma for weeks. 
that's important. That's going to come back later. And they find her scribbling um, on a piece of paper. Uh, it says, I can no longer associate myself, which is quite mysterious. Uh, I think they nicely established the geography of the apartment here. And we also find this chest of drawers has moved and it, there's a closet that's been hidden. So I guess this that's is supposed to be... the bit that got me. Furniture blocking doors, secret doors, doors that you don't want to, someone to get into or out of. That scares me. Yeah, because of the poltergeist, not well, actually in poltergeist, but like real life poltergeist, like stacking, and it's in Ghostbusters. So, so abnormal stacking is weird, and furniture in places where it shouldn't be, mm. and no one, and also it doesn't get resolved, does it? Like she moves that secretary by herself, mm. and then the estate is just like, oh, her son must have helped her, mm. but it's really big and heavy, and mm. you never find out what happened. You just yeah. know she wanted to block her neighbors. It's just layers of weird. It's like yeah. she blocked the neighbors, blocked a door. What was it? What was going on? And the bit where he's like, how on earth did she move it on her own? Like, and like, was it was it that so much terror that she found this inner strength exactly. to do yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. She's eighty. She was eighty nine. That's a lot of inner strength. Um. We also meet Hutch, who is sort of their, a friend of theirs, an older guy. Did you recognise Hutch? No. It is the same so. actor who played Dr. Zaius in uh, Planet of the Apes. Oh, is it? Yes. <laughs> so you wouldn't have recognised him necessarily, but you might have, you might have known. Um, oh. And so he's Basil Exposition here. Um, he explains that the building had a bad reputation at the turn of the century. Uh, the Trench Sisters great name uh conducted experiments there they supposedly... isn't it yeah it's, really it's good a great name, name. the <laughs> um, trench sisters immediately makes you go i don't know why i think it's trench is it's quite an ugly word so you associate trenches with bad things war trench foot for example i think as well where you group someone as sisters yes. especially if you're in new york and you either think um the the craze in New York for mediums and a lot of medium well those really famous mediums they were sisters weren't they can't remember their names and um, they died in penury in horrible circumstances mm. um, and you just think witches yep. straight away witches yep 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 they cooked and ate several young children supposedly the next tenants practiced witchcraft and and there was a dead infant found wrapped in newspaper in the basement so all lovely stuff oh, what a line wrapped in newspaper some of the dialogue in this is really good. Um, meanwhile, Rosemary's upstairs. She's busy um, redesigning the house. I feel like there's some some stuff here going on. Like it's almost like a doll's house to her, and her clothes are quite childlike, and she behaves like a child. Did you see something in this, Vicky, or am I reading too much? I did. Into it? Yeah, I tell you what else I was thinking. Do you remember my other favourite film, The Devil's Advocate? Remember when um, yeah. Charlize Theron oh, redecorates shit. the apartment? Exact same thing. Yeah, bored woman does up brownstone apartment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is the thing. So, Mia Farrow, at first, she's got that wide eyed, like that sort of innocent ingenue thing, like down pat. Like, there is no one better than her at that. And at first, I was like, this is going to annoy me because I don't see where you're going to find any strength from to do what needs to be done. Mm. But the performance is so, like, drip fed, just tiny little bits. And she gets this strength incrementally so that by the time she gets to the end, she hasn't, like, fully, like, Lyndall Hamiltoned up and been like, fuck this, I'm going to save my baby. But the way that when she says to her pregnant bump, like, I'm going to kill them all, you know that's a huge journey for that particular woman. And she sells the shit out of it. Like, it's just... Mm. I thought that was a, a really uh, restrained way of showing her strength developing, and it, it fits for this. Is yeah, and, really and you know, I'm, I'm interesting. I'm talking about her them sort of infantilizing her, but there's a there's a there's a 20 minute documentary someone made at the time uh, following her and Polanski around, and that's what she acted like in real life. She was a she was a very young, she was like a 
flower child. She was a hippie. She was always singing, always dancing. She's painting flowers everywhere all, all over the set. She seems quite annoying. To be honest, yeah, she. I found her annoying, definitely. She but, yeah, seems like she's not unlike. Bird. She's not unlike the Rosemary in the movie. Um, and jumping ahead, but we, I won't go on about it too much. But just to like anchor this point, after the dream sequence, she is she's childlike and she's all the rest of it. And she says so clearly to her husband, "What did she say? I had a dream. Oh, something inhuman was raping me." And it's like that's such a bold, brave thing to say to a man who you think has just violated you. And a child, a childlike person doesn't have the strength to say something like that. You just be like you'd be too awful to look it in the eye and give it a, give it a name. And she does do that, and it doesn't seem to cost her anything to do that so she is a lot stronger than it's mm. tempting to think she is just because she's got a big swinging dress on and she's got her hair in pigtails and she doing stuff like that uh, she meets her neighbor in the basement Teresa, who is staying with the castavets and then next thing Teresa is dead she's jumped out of a window and we meet the castavets who claim that she was depressed um mm. and then uh, Rosemary has a nightmare. She has a nightmare of convent life. So we kind of learn that she's a lapsed Catholic, that the, the lip sync is just off in this dream. And it, it really, um, it's creepy. I think he's captured, perhaps he sort of captured a nightmare dream logic quite well in this film with a couple of times we see those kind of visions. Um, and did you hear what, what she's hearing in that dream from the neighbours next door? Because I listened to it a few times and it's quite illuminating. What, the chanting? Uh, no, she can hear the neighbours talking as well. Uh, it oh, sort okay. of overlaps no, with the chanting. So what Minnie Castavet you can hear her saying is, start from scratch. I told you not to tell her in advance. I told you she wouldn't be open-minded. Um, basically admitting their guilt over her death because obviously what they were going to do they were trying to do with Teresa is what they end up doing with Rosemary right and then we're into what I'm calling the offer so uh Minnie shows up um played by Ruth Gordon and uh she asks if they have any children she's interested in the nursery she invites them for dinner she's this wacky lovable old dear um (laughs) but she's very nosy I love her sense of style Were were you liking the clothes there I thought she looked amazing. She, they look. They bought the her and Roman when they first walked down the street. They look like birds. Like they just appear. They just. They look like birds of paradise. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Agree. We meet. We meet Mister Mister Castavet Roman um, when they go around there. He's overfilling their glasses with vodka blush. I've got a note on that. I was like, "That's the man for me." Oh, I appear to have <laughs> too much alcohol in your glass. Sit down, Roman. Let's stay a while. <sighs> He's spilling it. He seems wacky. They're, they're quite unassuming. And, you know, as the film goes on, they become the smiling face of evil. But they're they're kind of the last people you'd expect, which is, I think, a great twist in this story. Um, they're criticising the Pope over dinner and talking about religious hypocrisy because uh, Levin wanted to anchor this film to when the Pope visited New York that year. So that's playing in the background throughout the movie, the, the visit of the Pope. Uh, they talk about seeing Guy's potential and his need for a break, an acting break. They ask about her family's fertility. Uh, she does what <laughs> Minnie does uh, while the men are, are smoking and talking in the living room. And we realise with hindsight that this is when this indecent proposal is probably happening um, from Roman to Guy. Uh, but I love the precision of the shots here. The sort of you know you see the smoke from the men's room before before we get into that room, um, and then uh, Guy decides he's going back there tomorrow to hear more of their stories. Um, and then pretty soon after, uh, a role that Guy has lost, he then wins because the actor who got the role wakes up blind. Yeah. And when he hears this news, Guy immediately goes out 
And that's one of the best things about this movie, I think, that with the whole film unfolds from Rosemary's point of view. And there's a whole other film happening between Guy and the Castavets next door in the other apartment. And I feel like you could literally make a movie of that, like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern <laughs> are dead. And it's the first time I've been yeah. so aware that there's two films taking place side by side and we're only getting half the films. And that other half could be just as interesting as what we're seeing. Yeah. Okay. And on that bombshell, let's take a quick break. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And we're back with what I'm calling the ordeal. Because the Castavets, um, uh, Rosemary and Guy are going to have a romantic dinner uh, to try and get pregnant. And the Castavets show up during that dinner uh, and Minnie drops off a chocolate mouse slash moose slash mouse, <laughs> uh, which has a chalky <laughs> undertaste. Uh, she, Rosemary doesn't <laughs> like it, but Guy insists she finishes it. Um, yeah, but the way he insists, like, it's really clever because he doesn't force her to eat it, sort of. He coerces her into eating it. But do you think they had other stuff, like, in case she just said no? Because it's like a, you know, a proper couple's argument where he's like, oh, she's like, well, if it's a big deal to you, then I'll just eat it. No, 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 don't worry about it. You know, you're, now you're making it into a big deal and all of that. So what if she just refused to eat it? Like, because she is drinking, isn't she? So I suppose they could have just put it in her drink. But yeah, I just wondered if they had, like, other, other desserts ready. To go. Isn't the idea throughout this film, though, that, that, that they feel like the wife will do what the husband tells her? Yes. I, yeah. I mean, but she doesn't, does she? Like, she, she acts out later with her pregnancy. So she doesn't quite do what she's been told to do. So I, I feel I like know. that's what that argument to me. What... Yeah, go on. I was going to say, if all the the poison or the sedative or the whatever is in that mousse and they've got nothing else as backup, the way that he plays that to get her to eat it is very clever and really controlling because she, it looks like she isn't going to do it and he knows exactly what to say to her to make her think it was her idea. Mm. But she doesn't do it. No, but she eats enough of it, doesn't she? I don't know. Well, no, because I think that's why she wakes up. Yeah, Be but she can't move. Like True. But I think 
just so that she wasn't going to go, something fucking weird is going on here. They yeah. have wanted her to remain unconscious for the whole thing. Yes. So that's why she sees yeah, that's true. the devil. But yeah, this is what ultimately <laughs> almost kind of saves the day, but then it doesn't. Just the fact that she doesn't finish the whole thing. Otherwise, yeah, that plan yeah. would have would have played out perfectly. So, yeah, Rosemary feels sick. Guy carries her to bed as she's passing out because um, he wants to make that baby. He takes her clothes off. And then she has another one of these dreams. She's on a boat. There's this religious chatter happening. There's all this religious iconography. There's a typhoon. She heads below deck. She lies on a mattress surrounded by naked old people. And uh, then we sort of hear Minnie saying, as long as she ate that mouse, she can't hear or see, now sing which is very frightening because some kind of creature then gets on top of her and is inside her. And that's when she says, as Alex quoted, that this is no dream. This is actually happening. Um, disturbing the guy stuff. knew this was, this was going to happen. He's he look, does look a bit surprised, doesn't he? Like, no, yeah. he knows it's going to happen, but I think it's still shocking to yeah. him. To yeah, see yeah, that. yeah. I mean, it would be, wouldn't it? You'd imagine so. You, yeah. Yeah. I've never seen this before. No. Well, also, I feel like there, there could be an aspect with Guy where it all seemed a bit mad and a bit of fun until that actor lost his sight. And then suddenly I think he realises the seriousness of what he's got himself into because, you know, maybe it was just a fun fantasy for him to discuss with them. But, but the reality's kicked in at this point. Yeah, but I don't, I mean, I guess there's a little bit of an implication there that he might be like, oh, like, you know, it's, I wish I hadn't done this. And I don't think there's any of that in him. Yeah. I think he's totally on board for this because that's the kind of guy he is. He's just, Mm. he really is like, fuck it. If I get a career out of this, it doesn't matter. Yeah, but that's why it's so good because... I've forgotten his job was an actor and I don't, you don't, it's not that satisfying to see actors portrayed in film mm. usually. So I was like, oh shit, he's an actor, that's annoying. But it's perfect that he's an actor because the self-centeredness in the nicest possible way, but the self-centeredness that an actor needs to have to immerse themselves in a role and be good at their job is perfect for this setup because when he's promising Rosemary all these things later on, those are things that will probably take him further away from her because it means his career is going to blossom. So all these things are so shallow. She, I don't even think she could be tempted. So later on, he's like, look, if we do this, Universal are interested and Paramount are interested when we're going to be living in Beverly Hills. But anyone would be like, that's maybe not what I want, which might be very selfish, but you're my husband. And if you become this huge, big star, I won't have you as much as I do now. So that's such an empty, shallow Mm. promise for both for her, particularly because of his job. But he's so detached Anyway. But he's so good at apologising. I thought he was amazing. Like when he walks in, he's like, let's have a baby. And she's like, really? Um, and on this particular day, and the way he apologises with the flowers and he's like, I, he's, he doesn't say this, but he's like, I've been such a dick and I'm really aware of that. And that self-awareness, so quickly, you'd be like, yeah, that would work. Apart from... But he's acting there. He's yeah, a, yeah. There's nothing genuine about I know, that. But I wonder about people that are in relationships with actors. How do you ever know where you are? Like if they're very good, how do you ever know what's going on for real? Yeah, I guess at some point you do, though. I don't think, I, I mean, I don't think you can keep up the facade forever. I think, there, you know, I think ultimately she would eventually sort of weigh up these two, like, disparate guys that are, like, either detached and very self-involved or 
very, very good at apologising and go, well, these two things can't be the same person. So one yeah. of these isn't true. Yes. It's probably him being nice to get what he wants, like a Satan baby. And also she, going back a bit, but when she wakes up from the dream and she's like, what the fuck was that? You. And he's like, yeah, it was kind of sexy in like a necrophiliac way. And it's like, wow, like that's that can't work. There's no way that's going to work on her. Like that's what, if, she, if what she thinks, the rational explanation for what's just happened is still unacceptable mm. um, but it, he sort of just about gets away with it but I think within the confines of the film within her character he doesn't get she's not like okay well, if that was if, that was, if that's what you wanted that was alright but no what I mean I, I think I think even if she's worked I think she has maybe worked out what Guy is I think she possibly knows underneath it all that he might not be like someone who is ever going to be there emotionally for yeah, her which is why and, she wants a baby so much exactly yeah. so I think at that point you know this whole like well, well being Beverly Hills she's she doesn't even really reference that she's looking at the cot she's like yeah. you know it's all about the baby so in that sense you know, having this emotionally available husband is never something she's hoping for. So his success yeah. brings her money and he's still going to be pretty much the same guy who she was with anyway, which is a self-involved actor. Yeah. Okay. I see that. So she is preggers now and she wants to see her doctor played by Charles Grodin, which I always forget <laughs> that he's in this film. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> it's so strange seeing him play it so understated and uh, without humour. But... um. Uh, the Minnie and Roman and, and Guy do not want her seeing her doctor. They want her seeing Dr. Saperstein, played by Ralph Bellamy. Um, he of Trading Places fame. Um, mm. And so we're into the gestation. Um, so this ba- while this baby is growing inside of her, um, Guy and the, the uh, Minnie and Roman gradually isolates and, and gaslights Rosemary. They keep her away from her friends. Uh, and her doctor, they give her this daily vitamin drink, which clearly there's something wrong with. Um, out of frustration, she goes to get her hair done at Vidal Sassoon, which is, uh, <laughs> um, I like this lady, but that's, I mean, that's, I feel like that's Rosemary reclaiming a bit of her own agency and trying to have some control over her life because it's all spinning out of control thanks to these people. Yeah. And it's also because Vidal Sassoon did the hairstyling on the movie. So that's why they get a name check in the middle uh, of the lot. film. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> it says at the end, hairstyle, uh, Mia Farrow's hairstyle is done by Vidal Sassoon. But it works because it is one of the most famous haircuts in film history. Um, are you a fan mm-hmm. of that cut, Vicky? She's like, well, I mean, it's, yeah, it's very, very, very famous. And it's led many a people down the wrong path <laughs> because there's only really two people. I mean, um, Emma, what's she called? Emma Watson. She looked great. There's, I, mean, I tell you what, you just have to be extremely beautiful and, you know. Delicate, I think, in I features. Suppose delicate, you know, and I hate all these adjectives to describe women as like pixie like and fairy like. Pixie like, delicate, though. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like a precious thing, like a little ornament. Sort of a precious pixie like. Fairy. Delicate fairy thing. <laughs> yeah. Then you can, and only and then. And only then. You can have, yeah, you need the bone structure for it. But it's a it delicate is true. pixie fairy with good bone structure. Yeah. Yeah. It's extremely thin. Don't mm. put on a single pound of weight. Because 
it's it, but it is a haircut that that I don't know that I've found that straight men don't like because they think that it defeminizes someone and I get it for the film because she's at a point uh, Rosemary's at a point in her life where she's going to be she has to carry the burden of all these expectations of femininity and impending motherhood and all the rest of it and to cut your hair it's a shame that her hair wasn't like super long like Rapunzel long and then it was like da da but fine um, and so to sort of defeminize yourself in that way is an act of resistance what does Guy say when he sees it for the first time doesn't he say something shitty worst, <laughs> worst mistake then, you ever made <laughs> Not really. <That's> right. <laughs> Marrying you. But also, they, they they do say that there's all these things that are happening to her at this point. This is what I understood more this time around, having been pregnant. The advice that Dr. Saperstein gives to her, you know he's bad because he is a devil worshipper, but he's like, don't read books, don't listen to your friends. That is actually excellent advice for a pregnant person because the books will mess you up. Everyone's got a different take on what it means at this point that this happened or whatever, and that will mess you up. So you watch that and you're like, he's a great doctor because that's fucking brilliant advice. But then you're like, no, you, Rosemary, just you, you definitely need to read the books and listen to your friends because you've got a Satan baby. <laughs> but I thought, thought that was really clever uh so hutch slash dr zayas uh visits and smells a rat and then his glove goes missing from the closet and then he ends up in a deep coma like the previous tenant who could no longer associate herself with them so there is a pattern there um and then hutch is dead uh she feels the baby kicking for the first time and says it's alive and puts guy's hand on her stomach uh, this is one of my favourite moments in the film because he pulls it away. He seems terrified. <laughs> um, uh, he, he's not a very good actor, clearly, because he should do that. But, um, yeah, he gives himself away a little bit there. And then uh, Hutch sends her a book uh, from Beyond the Grave, which means she realises that Roman Castavet is an anagram of Stephen Macarto son of Adrian Mercato, a former Bramford resident slash Satanist uh, or a witch. I found that quite confusing. I've, the, the, story, the film seems to suggest that witches and Satanists are interchangeable, but that doesn't sound right to me, although I'm not an Why expert not? on these things. Witches uh, worship Satan. Yeah, he's their boss. Yeah. Okay. All right, so witches are Satanists, Satanists. I just wasn't sure if these were Satanists. When they, when they tried witches in medieval times, yeah, yeah. they were. it was always like... You're you... an agent of Satan. Exactly. See, I know... There's wickers. Wickers are, like, obviously, they're good witches. You can witches. be a good witch. Yeah, you can be, like, a homeopath. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um... Or... Um... What's her name from Clarissa Explains It All? <laughs> Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Yeah. yeah. She's a good witch. So are we dealing with both Satanists and witches in this film? They're sort of the same. They're in the same club, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, they're sort of. They they're working. They're cooperating. I, you know, it's how. However, they want to be defined, Chris. I mean, they could be. You know, they're sort of. They, they are interchangeable, though. Uh, I feel like some of our clash putters may be witches who are about to call us out on this and go and explain why witch is. We should be educated. Let, us, let I, us learn. I'd be happy to. Mm -hmm. But right now, I'm why, saying why a witch is the same thing. I went to uni with a witch and she was definitely not a Satanist, so I'm putting She's a homeopath. That's all that is. She was, um, but what, what, but okay, so you went to uni with her. Or was she good at gardening? I mean, that's all it is, isn't it? Like, what? If you're a white witch, you're like, oh, I grow herbs. That's it. Did you yeah. say herbs? <laughs> I always say herbs. <laughs> <laughs> no, not happy with that. Um, what did your what did your witch friend do that made you realise she was a witch, or did she just tell you she was a witch? Yeah, she told me she was a witch on the first date. 
of uni. This was a date you went on? No, on the first day of uni, she oh, told me she okay. was a witch. Uh-huh. And that was it. And you just went, all right, and then you never spoke about it again. It feels like there was there's more information here. It was it was that was just as my parents were dropping me off or, or just about to leave and they heard her telling me she was a witch and I, they didn't want to leave. My, my folks were really genuinely concerned for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> but she was some white witch. I don't know. I didn't really talk to her again. That's it. That's different though. She's a white witch. And also she totally fills the uh the age old adage of the people you mur- meet in Freshers Week are the people you never want to see again for your <laughs> rest of your time at uni <laughs> she, she lived opposite me for the next bloody year keep that door shut um so uh, <laughs> um guy guy throws away her her witchcraft book um so this is all part of the isolation he's keeping her friends away but he's also keeping her away from literature don't let a woman read don't let a woman learn don't let a woman figure things out for herself but she's very resourceful and determined rosemary uh, as you say she finds this inner strength doesn't she vicky so she she keeps investigating she buys more witchcraft books um she goes off and makes a phone call because uh, she wants to get away from Sapistine. Because um, she's yeah. realising that she he's in on it. If she was at the start, if she was less sort of what's the right word? Not twee, but if she was less like a little fairy lady at the start, mm. these delicate pixie like a delicate pixie like yeah. fairy lady, mm. then these these markers of strength would be inconsequential. You'd be like, God, that's nothing. Anyone can do that. Anyone can buy a book, and anyone can make a phone call. But for Rosemary in particular, these things are huge. And I think Mia Farrow's performance bringing you along on that journey just just totally works. Like I, I understood the big deal of being in a phone box, which is, doesn't seem like such a big deal, but. And fun cameo there, the bloke trying to get in to the phone box who looks a bit like Sapistine from behind, which is why she gets frightened. That is William Castle of Coward's Corner fame. Oh, is it? <laughs> yeah, that's his wee cameo. Um, so she spills the beans to Dr. Charles Grodin. And- I think that's one thing where I was I fell out with her a bit because she's got the baby bump and she's she's saying, I mean, because also it's devastating as well. She's talking to the baby bum. She's going, don't worry, little Andrew or Jenny. And she keeps changing the names. And she said, I'm going to protect you. And she thinks that it's her baby. And that's really devastating when you know what's coming, which it is, it is her baby, but it isn't the baby that she thinks she's going to have. But for a woman who's found quite a lot of strength to do these things that seem micro, but are quite extraordinary for her, for her to sit in front of a doctor and just blabber and just be like, blah, 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 and then round out a sentence by saying one thing, for sure though they definitely want my baby it's like you've got to find a way of bringing him on this journey with you rather than you've met a man who you think you can trust based on maybe one meeting and you've tried to tell him the truth and that's really foolish i also feel like it's quite an important scene because as an audience member it made me take a step back and you when you listen to her say they have a coven and they want my baby she does sound like a completely insane person. And yeah. I think this is what Polanski was trying to get into the film, that she is an unreliable narrator, that a lot of this is dreams and nightmares and could be paranoia and delusions. So I feel like it's an important moment to make us question what's happening because it's yeah. so far-fetched. Really? You think there's... That's interesting. I mean, it's a, that's a similar theme to something we'll talk about on Thursday with The Omen. So you think there's a reading of this film where it might all be in her head? Well, both directors, both Richard Donner and Polanski, have spoken about that. I think when you watch the film, I think both times there's too much evidence for stuff that's literally happening in front of us (laughs) to suggest it isn't. But um, I do think that's what that scene is there for, just to say, hold on a minute. Is this is what we think is happening here actually happening here or is this woman unreliable? 
It doesn't really work, though, does it? Did you? What was your? I mean, at any point when you watch this, it's difficult because we've seen it already. No, I never thought that it was in her head. No. But yeah. So I suppose that's why I read that scene. It's like you've made a mistake there, Rosemary, because you need to be a bit more subtle yeah. about trying to get help. We also realise here that Rosemary's got it slightly wrong. She's worried they want to use her baby in rituals, that these witches want the blood and the skin. Um, she doesn't realise mm. it's actually much worse than that. Well, a bit worse than that. That's pretty bad, wanting the baby's blood and skin. But, um, yes, it all goes wrong because in Walk Thanks Guy and Dr. Sapistine, and uh, basically her options are to go home or go to a mental hospital. And so it's interesting. This is, you know, it's all about a woman not being believed here. She's handed over to a bunch of men. I think it's very sad and very ironic that it's Roman Polanski is the man who's made this movie based on his treatment of women and his past crimes, because I feel like it does have a lot to say about women not being believed. I think as well, the first couple, the first time, well, no, the first proper time when I watched it when I was 19 or whatever, she gets bundled into that car and you're sort of thinking, especially with like a bit more of a modern lens on it, you should just run. And that's really unfair. Now I know what it feels like to be that heavy. And when you feel like that, you feel so vulnerable. You feel heavy when you're pregnant and she's about to give birth. And so it's hard to run oh, anyway. And I'm not a great runner, but you also feel so vulnerable because you feel like you're protecting yourself and you're not separate from this thing. You're with this thing in this relationship, but you want to protect yourself too, but you can't carve it off and like put it in a bag and like run with it. So it's there's like the physical thing of like waddling around and being really obvious as well. Like I hate I hated that feeling of like you feel like everyone can see you all the time because you take up all this space and you spend a lot of your life, you know, trying to take up less space and people feel like they can comment on it all the time. And it just doesn't feel possible to run away at that time, both physically but also mentally. Like you just get really worn down by it. And so I understand now why she just sits in the car and just looks knackered and just done with it. And, and also, uh, there's, a, there's a nice little moment here when you watch it a second time as well, because I think she's just tried to go on the run. Uh, she thought that the Grodin was going to help her. That was her, her effort. And these people are everywhere. Like, there literally is nowhere to run because the guy driving the car is the dentist she met at the New Year's Eve party earlier. Oh, is it? And so I think the idea is that these witches are everywhere, that there literally is nowhere she can go. They've, they've got control of everything. Yeah. Uh, which is properly heartbreaking. And so now we're into the birth um, because she escapes. Uh, she does get back into her own apartment. She locks the door and she starts making calls, but they all get in. And I like the way the film doesn't show us this, doesn't explain it because we've had this information all along since since the start of the film about how they could get in. Um, so I like the way this film sort of trusts the audience to put two and two together. And we've got this truly terrifying scene where they hold her down and sedate her as she's screaming. Um, and then she wakes up and she's told it's a boy. But there's been complications. Guy blames it on uh, prepartum hysteria. Um, but she's lost the kid. But uh, as we've established, Paramount and Universal are after Guy. So every cloud has a silver lining here. Uh, she hears the baby crying, but they give her a pill. And then they start taking her milk. They're literally milking her. Um but she doesn't eat the pills because, again, she's very resourceful, Rosemary. She's hiding the pills. She gets up in the night. She finds the keyhole in the back of the closet and the door leading to Castavet's apartment. She grabs a knife, the biggest knife on the rack, the knife that's nearly as big as her. And then she enters what appears to be a baby shower with the knife. Uh, uh, there's a great moment where Roman tries to speak to her and she says, shut up, you're a Dubrovnik. I don't hear you. 
because that's what he'd claimed earlier in the film. That's where he was headed. Um, <laughs> and there's some international guests there as well, which uh, made me think that this is this scene is sort of like the three kings that the magi coming to give gifts and pay their respects to the newborn. Yeah. Um, the crib is black and, and Rosemary looks in and she is terrified. Uh, what have you done to its eyes? She says, he has his father's eyes, comes the reply. Uh, and they all start chanting, hail Satan. Uh, Minnie says, be a real mother to Adrian. I've forgotten, I've forgotten the devil's called Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> Why did that not become a thing? Damien became a thing, but Adrian didn't become a thing. Uh, Guy tries to justify uh, why he's done what he's done and she spits in his face. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, and then you see, you know, Guy is, is, wor- is so much worse than the other the, the devil worshippers he's surrounded by because at least you get a sense here they truly believe in what they are doing. Uh, whereas he's just doing it for fame and, and fortune and, and willing to rent out his wife's womb to achieve that. Uh, and yeah. also, having seen him walk around the apartment on crutches practicing his role, he really is a shit actor. <laughs> <laughs> I think the ensemble cast are the best in this scene because they start to argue amongst themselves about who's going to like shush the baby because the baby's crying. And there's another bit earlier than that when Rosemary's walking through with the knife and they're, they're bickering and someone says, show her a bit of respect. She's his mother. And that's amazing. Like the idea that, she, yeah, she's but they've tried to lie to her and say that she, yeah, the baby's died. But when she puts the teaspoon in the breast milk which which would make it spoil and they're like no 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 don't do that don't do that so she figures out what's going on so she has earned their respect beyond like being this vessel and it the line show her some respect she's his mother just chills you a bit because you're like oh you can see the way the scene is going which they're about to make a request of her which she might actually accept because she'll get she'll have that she have she'll have what she wanted which was to be a mum and have whatever respect she thought she might get or just that authority in some way um, which I, I just I love that line. It's great when Roman calls out Laura Louise, yeah. and he, he's he's like, "Look, shut up, Laura, Laura Louise, get away from there, and like like let Rosemary take over." Yeah, because you're rocking her too fast. You're rocking the yeah. baby too fast. A shout out to Patsy Kelly who plays Laura Louise. Though she's absolutely brilliant in this film. Um, she comes from a comedy background. She was a she was a famous comedian, sort of fifty years before this movie, and she brings that. She's really funny. She'd be really funny if she wasn't so frightening because we know what she's doing. <laughs> um, but she plays it with real humour. But then, yep, we're into the ending here. So uh, Rosemary hears the baby crying. She gives into her maternal instinct. She starts rocking the cradle. Um, this serene look comes on her face and then uh, that lullaby kicks in. So what do you, you know, has she accepted this baby as her own? Is she going to raise it as her own? Is this it for yes, Rosemary? Yes. 100%. 100%. Because she, what she'll be thinking is that she could turn him. Like, he's, this is one of the, it's one of the issues I have with like devil worship generally or like the law. But if he's half human, because he is her baby. So there is, she wasn't used as a vessel in that sense. Like, she wasn't a surrogate. So she'll be thinking in that moment, well, he's half me. So I'm going to look out for this child and I'm going to try and make sure that he doesn't turn out to be. The devil. I don't even think she's thinking that. I think she's just like, this is my baby. So fuck, it doesn't matter who he is. I'll defend yeah. him. I don't think she's even thinking, I'm going to I'm gonna make sure he doesn't become, you know, the Antichrist or whatever. And I'm going to keep him away from these people. She's going to be like, I'm just going to raise him. And also imagine all the free help you'd get. Like it is a lot of free help. A lot of free help. Because I hate other people's babies. Yeah. And all those people in that room are like, we fucking love your baby. Yeah. Which is unusual. Really unusual. And they've got a really nice apartment. They've got all that free booze we were talking about so they'd be like look rosemary you 
you are his mum and we totally get that. But if you want to have a night out with the gals, we have got this. Yeah, like yeah. that is such a perfect combo. Exactly. So what do you think? What do you think I is going I on? I hate other people's babies. I, I don't have a baby, so I guess I don't hate baby. I just want to be clear. I don't hate babies. It's just you know, if someone was to go, could you watch our baby? Mm. That, that's a hard no. <laughs> Because I don't want to be involved in that. Whereas these these witches slash Satanists are, are all like, yeah, we'll totally take care of him. What do you oh, think is going on with harder. Adrian's eyes and hands and feet? Because that all comes up well, in they, this scene. They're yellow He's... with like uh, they're like cat they're like eyes. Cat eyes. Yeah. Because that's mm. what the devil's eyes look like. I mean, his hands and feet, I'm curious to know because I think the dream sequence is brilliant because of where you see all the naked old people and whatever. I think the hairy hand is bad. <laughs> like, yes. Do you think if she'd pulled down the, his little blankie a little bit further and gone, I forget the eyes, his fucking hooves. Yeah, that's an issue. Yeah. yeah. I know, you'd always hear him coming. He could never sneak up on you. <laughs> <laughs> when he learned to walk, <laughs> cantering. <laughs> no, I'm assuming that he's a totally human-looking baby. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how they're going to get past the eye thing. That feels like something he's going to get bullied for in school. But simultaneously, he deal with that. As though. he's being bullied, he's going to be making one hell of a shit list. Yeah. Oh, wait for Armageddon. Well, we're going to find out about that in, in Thursday's film, um, which could play like a sequel to this. One thing I would ask, though, is that the book ends, the final line of the book is uh, all the people in that room chanting Hail Rosemary. Do you think that would have been a nice button for the ending of this movie? No. No. Okay. I really like that it, would... but I, I think Why? This is Why a... do you like it? That seems to... Just because they've gone, yeah, all right, she can look after him. She's, she's on board. So we've appealed to her maternal instincts or her maternal instincts have kicked in and she's going to look after this kid, which is good because we want him to be raised, preferably by his mother. But it's still, you know... That's great that she's involved, but we're really all here for the baby. Fair enough. All right, that's all I've got. So should we do the bits? Yeah. Vicky, uh, what is your favourite scene? Uh, the dream sequence, sex with the devil. I think oh. the, because of the earlier convent thing, I felt I felt so, so sorry for Rosemary when she flashes back to being a child and she apologises about, is, does she break a window or something and she apologises to a mm. nun? And that, because she's, she's so childlike anyway, I just felt so devastated for her that she could remember this incident like you do when you're a child, like this thing that stayed with you. And then the idea, just the bitten by a mouse, because it's such a cute thing to say, but it's also really disturbing. And if, if someone said, oh, you missed, you missed your visit with me because you were bitten by a mouse, and it's got loads of symbolism, loads of meaning, like she's going to miss her rendezvous with Catholicism and heaven because she's eaten this moose. So presumably she doesn't get into heaven anymore because she's Satan's mother. It's all very, very good. Uh, Alex? The party at the end. I think we've spoken about this party like on two recent podcasts, wasn't it? Cable Guy. Cable Guy and Arlington Road both based their oh, parties yeah. on this party. And it is. It's just a really creepy party. But I, I really like the line, what have you done to its eyes? It's because you don't see it. And yeah. I'm so pleased you don't see it's it. It's good you don't see it because when you see the hairy hands, mm. you think, mm, oh, shit. But they could have made a dummy baby with cat's eyes and it just would look silly. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think you need to see it. And like, she's so good. Mm. Like, what? It's her face yeah. when she sees it. And it's, you know, it's that classic thing of, you know, like we all thought we saw Gwyneth Paltrow's head in the box in Seven. You know, you think I've seen that baby because of her face, but you never do. Yeah, and obviously the shock, horror or value of a woman looking into a crib and screaming, which is not supposed to, in quote marks, happen Mm. ever. Uh, I'm going for the ending, not so much the party, but just just the, 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 the final shot of her, her acceptance. Because I think the first time I'd watched this, I'd not really seen many films where the villains win at the time. And so mm. it was it was a genuine shock 
that things that was there was not going to be a happy ending here or, or some kind of positive resolution. Um, yeah, it really got to me. Uh, Alex, who is your most valuable whatever? Ruth Gordon is Mini Casavet. <laughs> I think she's brilliant. I think because we've all sort of encountered an equivalent of that character, that sort of harmless but really annoying busybody who just like immediately sort of steamrolls into your life and is like, oh, let me do this, let me do that, let me do that. And you always go, yeah, God, they're annoying. But to have adopted that personality or to be using that personality to conceal a really dark motive, I think there's something really upsetting about that. And Mm. so, and also she's brilliant. So that's mine. Deservedly won an Oscar for the role as well. Um, Mickey? Uh, Ruth Gordon. (laughs) (laughs) I really want to give it to Mia Farrow because I do really, I can't express enough like how much of a change has come over me in watching this performance now. And her her innocence is quite jarring at first and this sort of gradual change. But Ruth Gordon just like, she she just steals it. Like when Mm. she says to Rosemary at the end, he chose you out of all the women in the world. And you're like, yeah, actually, (laughs) she's so convincing. But it's more for the physicality. Like the way she, you know, that scene where they're having the dinner party and she's handing out slices of cake and she's like slamming this cake and like chopping it and scoffing it. And it's, she's just like, it's abnormal the way she's going at the cake. And that little, those little breadcrumbs there that something is not quite right, but she's so casual. So She's, you know, she's exerting such control, but she's so convinced that she's going to win that she can just let Rosemary kind of do the things she wants to do. Like she lets her leave to see Hutch. And then when she runs into her, she's like, oh, what a coincidence. I'm just doing my shopping and basically kidnaps her off the street. It's a it's a performance that totally passed me by um, the other time I watched it. And I was like, I don't get it. And now this idea of, your, you know, your villain, you're in daylight, hiding in plain sight under the guise of a woman who should be like your nice older neighbor next door. But she is intensely intense and too much and annoying it's amazing an amazing amazing thing to watch I, I saw Mia Farrow talking about the fact that when she was watching her eat the cake she was in awe because she could see how much she was doing just through the way she ate the cake yeah. and then um that scene at the end when when Rosemary drops the knife uh, Minnie bends oh, down and picks up the knife up her carpet. Yeah, Fuck, and, that's and such she, a good moment and, and, and she rubs the floor because there's a little hole because they've established earlier on that she, she's, she's very house proud she's with her house floor proud. Yeah. so it's just it's so much going on that's there because I, I laughed my head off at that bit and look at what I'm watching like Rosemary has just gone to see what she thought was a dead baby and he's in this black crib and I'm laughing my head off because it's like oh that carpet that's going to get to Minnie like that's it's so good my MBW is Ira Levin, the author of the book on which this was based, because the film follows his book pretty much scene for scene and at times word for word. Uh, Polanski and Farrell always get the credit for this film, but I think he deserves a shout out as well. So there you go. And Alex, uh, if you could change anything, what would you change? Uh, what would I change? Um the bit at the end, actually, because I said I love the party scene and I do love the line, what have you done to its eyes? And they go, he has his father's eyes. I don't know that she needs to go, but guys' eyes are normal. I feel like she should know enough by then. I feel like we all know enough that it seems like she shouldn't still be that far behind. She should have put everything together, remembered the devil's eyes, realised, as she said at the time, this is really happening. And, you know, to sort of go, but but hang on, guys, the father, at that point in the film, it seems a bit late to the party, no pun intended. So that, I also really 
find the fact that the poster for this, well, was it the poster or the cover of um, my video box, does not really relate to what happens in the film. Because the pram's outside. The pram is outside on a hill, the silhouette of the pram. Yeah. And I'm like, it feels like that should be in it, like she's walking around with Satan's baby in a pram. Yeah, you're right. So, so, those. so the studio didn't know how to sell the film and uh, took it to an advertising agency who put the carriage on a mountain and wrote the words, pray for Rosemary's baby. And just that image and those words, were, they purchased for $100,000. And Evans puts that down to making the picture the success it was. Uh, they said it was the film out of the year. And that's what they reckon a lot of the success is down to that image, Alex. No, I, I I agree. I just think it feels uh, dissociated from um, from the actual film. But it's an iconic image. The fact that I can remember it just like that means it's a great image. And it does look creepy as fuck. Vicky? This is a really tiny thing because I do feel a bit silly because it's obviously a fantastic film. But the one thing that threw me, like just took me out of the story a little bit, is when Rosemary is in pain and she's been in pain since the day she found out she was pregnant and she's had the party and her friends have been like, this isn't normal. You should not be in this much pain, which is all true. And it's that, you know, that great thing of actually maybe you, you, Rosemary, should be the person that listens to your friends. She's threatening to go and see the other doctor. And just at the point where it looks like it's all going to kick off because she really is very insistent with Guy that she's going to go and see the doctor then the pain stops so that obviously takes her out of that you know she's not as determined to then go and see the doctor and she's like the baby's moving the baby's alive and all the rest of it and this pain has stopped so can the baby is it like the coven of witches or the baby knew to stop pushing her so much at that point and to stop this pain because the whole plan was about to be rumbled because she couldn't live like that another day and if that's true why put her in pain in the first place because the pain is what starts to put her you know she starts to smell a rat kind of thing because she's in extraordinary pain all the time so if they could control it, why not control it a bit sooner? Mm. But maybe it's just coincidence. You don't like coincidence. I don't know, so I don't want to buy that. So mm. there we are. Interesting. I'm like you, Vicky. I haven't really got much to change for this film, but I kind of wish we had a bit more of a backstory for Rosemary. Uh, got some sense of who she is or her inner life or what she wants aside from a baby. But I don't know. That might unbalance the film. I think it's fine as is. No, I think you're right because in devil stuff, devil lore, the devil wants to have sex with a woman to have a baby. But there are loads of people that would be willing to do that. The people at the party would have been willing to do that when they were of an age that they could have children. So what is it about Rosemary that makes her so perfect? Because Minnie's like, he chose you. And it's like, it would be good to know why he chose you. And to be a bit dark about it, probably there's something in this devil worshipping thing that it has to be... And not a voluntary arrangement because that's as bad as it could be kind of thing. Um, and I buy that. But then what is it about her that's so perfect for this setup? But also, did uh, say the devil, he chose you. Didn't he choose Teresa a, a few months before? Uh, and oh, it, yeah. it was just her getting wind of what was happening and not wanting to do it that made her kill herself. So is, is the devil just up for anyone? Yeah. Actually, that's a really drastic reaction to finding out that they want to implant the seed of the devil you could just leave. inside you. Yeah, she, oh, she, oh, straight out the window as opposed to... Do you think of, maybe she was already pregnant though? That must be it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, on that bombshell. <laughs> mm. <laughs> That's where we baby. Great stuff. Um, do you want to do a quiz this week remotely, Chris? I've got one. All right, here we go. Did you guys do Bible studies when you were at school? Oh, shit, no. We did RE, religious education. Excellent. That's what I'm asking. At this. That's what I'm asking. Oh, no. Right. Was it called Bible studies in your school? I don't think they were allowed to call it that anymore because we had to study all different kinds of religions. No, it was but called very RE. briefly for like it, two weeks. Mm. 
It was called Ari. All right, here we go. First question. What was God's sign to Noah that he would never destroy the earth again? Uh, the flood? A burning bush. What was the question? Did he? It's nicer. Fuck, we're it's so nicer bad than at that. This. What, what was God's sign to Noah that he would never destroy the earth again? Oh, a dove carrying a bit of leaf. Oh, that is right. No. An no. olive branch. No, nice. Really lovely. A uh, cuddle. After the water. Um, after the rain. Uh, uh, a uh, rainbow! Correct. <laughs> One point to Vicky. <laughs> I mean, name the place where Jesus walks on water. No, no religious knowledge in that answer. Rain, rainbow, rainbow. Sorry, sorry, Chris. What's the next question? Name the place where Jesus walked on water. Nazareth, the Sea of Galilee. Correct. Point to Alex. You can't Uh, shake your head at that. Rainbow, for fuck's sake. Which disciple denied Jesus three times? Paul. Judas. No, no. Uh, Peter. John, Adam, Peter, Matthew, I Mark, said Peter first. Luke. Correct, Alex got <laughs> a it. A man, it's always a man. <laughs> Alex got it. Uh, where did God okay. give Moses the Ten Commandments? On the Mount On Sinai. Mount Sinai, shut up! <laughs> <laughs> Correct, Alex. Alex knows his Bible, uh, which would be good for this question. That fucking surprises me, actually. (laughs) (laughs) It always surprises you when I beat you in the quiz. It's offensive. It's offensive that me knowing stuff you don't surprises you. (laughs) What is the last book in the Bible? Revelations. Correct. Wow. I should address these questions directly to you, Alex. Last question. (laughs) What is the last word in the Bible? Doom. (laughs) The end. Finn. (laughs) See ya. This way to Coward's Corner. I don't know. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for reading. (laughs) Please purchase our other books. Uh, There might be another one in a few hundred years. All right, quit with the jokes. How do all these religious things end? A full stop. Um. Uh, dot, dot, Amen. dot. Correct. <laughs> Alex got it. Amen. Correct. Hey. Well played, Alex. <sighs> Very proud of that. Uh, How th- do you know that, though? Thank you to my RE education yeah. at uh, St. Matthew's Church of England Primary School. 100 years ago. <laughs> mm. So, yeah, feel pretty good about that. Well done. Told you. I found, I found actual RE quite interesting. It was only when um, we had to go to church on a Wednesday and the... Uh, the priest like tried to make it cool because he thought that was the way to bring us in. All the fucking fire and brimstone stuff and flood in the world, amazing. Yeah. But him going, neighbours, everybody needs good neighbours. <laughs> the little understanding, we can find the perfect plan. Yes, those are the words to a popular television programme. But they're also... <laughs> also an important element of the Bible. I'm like, go fuck yourself, mate. <laughs> I didn't say that. I was like, thank you, Father. <laughs> that sounds weirder. Right then, we're done. Uh, so... Uh, my choices uh, next week, uh, which I'm very excited about. Are you excited, Victoria? You're yeah, excited yeah. by my choices. I know Chris is. Uh, so, next week, uh, the clue is <laughs> uh, it's the return of the Space Cowboy. That's your clue for next week's movies. A pairing. The clue fits both. It's the return of of the space cowboy that's your clue uh, before that though we'll be back on Thursday talking the omen in the meantime please subscribe rate and indeed review us if you have the time it's a great help and check in with us on Twitter and Instagram at ClashPod thanks for listening back Thursday the omen bye bye 
This was a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.